uh, it's one of the more well-known stories in the book. We're just going to pick up things at the end of chapter 8, or toward the end at verse 22. So after Gideon has, uh, at the, uh, under the Lord's blessing and guidance, after he has brought about their uh, salvation, we read this, verse 22. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in it the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest forty years in the days of Gideon. Jerubbaal, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. And Jerubbaal is just another name for Gideon. Now Gideon had seventy sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, at Ophrah of the Abiezrites. From here, we turn back a few books uh, to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 17, verses 14 through 20, where the Lord gives instructions about the future king and what that king should and should not do. Verse 14, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a book of uh, a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel." And finally, we turn to the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 8, where at, at last the Lord gives to the people a king, but reveals to them that their request is born out of evil motives. 
and warns them that that evil request, those evil motives will have a certain consequence. Uh, we'll read the verses 10 through 22. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. And turn to the book of Judges. As I indicated, we'll be dealing with the minor judges. There are six of them, just like there are six major judges. We find the first mentioned in chapter 3, verse 31. And then there's a grouping in chapter 10, and the last grouping is in chapter 12. So we're going to take them all together. Chapter 3, verse 31. Let's start there. After him, and that would be Ehud, was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. Turning to Judges 10, verse 1. After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua, son of Dodo, a man of Issachar. And he lived at Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel twenty-three years. Then he died and was buried at Shamir. After him arose Jair the Gileadite, who judged Israel twenty-two years. And he had thirty sons who rode on thirty donkeys, and they had 30 cities called Havoth Jair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried in Camon. And the last grouping is in chapter 12, at verse 8. After him, and that would be Jephthah, Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters he gave in marriage outside his clan, and 30 daughters he brought in from outside for his sons. And he judged Israel seven years. Then Ibzan died and was buried at Bethlehem. After him, Elon the Zebulonite judged Israel, and he judged Israel ten years. 
Then Elon the Zebulonite died and was buried at Aijalon in the land of Zebulun. After him, Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Pirathonite, judged Israel. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 donkeys, and he judged Israel eight years. Then Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Pirathonite, died and was buried at Pirathon in the land of Ephraim in the hill country of the Amalekites. So far, our text in those three passages. In response to the preaching of the gospel, we'll sing together two songs. Psalm 28, the stanzas 4 and 5, and immediately on the heels of that, hymn 71, stanzas 1 and 2. So two songs, Psalm 28, 4 and 5, together with hymn 71, 1 and 2. Brothers and sisters, in our Lord Jesus Christ, the text, or maybe I should say the texts before us this evening may seem to be an odd choice for a New Year's Eve service. We're dealing here, after all, with six men whose names most of us barely know, if at all, before tonight. Could we have named four of them? Probably not. In the context of the, books of the book of Judges, these are six minor figures about whom we aren't told very much. Shamgar comes out of nowhere and disappears without mention. Tola is nondescript. And Elon is barely more than a footnote in chapter 12. Apart from that one exploit of Shamgar, there's not much of a story involved in any of these six judges. That's quite different from the six major judges in this book. Othniel, Ehud, Deborah, Gideon, Jephthah, Samson. At least with those six, you've got lots of action. You've got drama. There's a story to tell. But with these six, it seems by comparison pretty, pretty boring. In fact, it all sounds rather strange. For where we do receive some details, in the case of, for example, Jair, Ibzan, and Abdon, we suddenly find ourselves reading of strange things, groupings of 30, 30 sons, 30 donkeys, 30 daughters, 30 cities. What's that about? And what is it with all this riding on donkeys? What's that got to do with anything? We might be thinking, this is not just a strange text for New Year's Eve, it's a strange text, period. Is the gospel of Jesus Christ even here somewhere in these six minor judges? Well, I'm happy to say, beloved, that yes, it is. In fact, the story of what God is doing in and through these six minor judges will help us, I hope, to gain a perspective on the year gone by and to fill us with new hope for the year that lies ahead. And so I proclaim to you this word of the Lord, Israel's minor judges showcase God's major grace. We'll see two points, man's inevitable drift into sin and God's invincible pledge to save. God's invincible pledge to save. Well, as we 
begin to take a closer look at these six minor judges, it's helpful to compare them with the six major judges, at least in, in a brief way. People call that one group major and the other minor not because the latter group were less important than the other or were somehow second-class judges, but simply in the context of the book of Judges, they have much smaller accounts. The one group have longer stories. We know more about them, so they're just referred to as the major judges. But they weren't necessarily more major in terms of the work they did than the minor ones. So we've got 12 judges overall, and through these 12 people, the Holy Spirit give us a picture of life in Israel during this whole time period known as the time period of the judges, roughly 400 years. And basically, we can see in these six minor judges a parallel with the six major judges. And the parallel is this, as the major judges show a gradual slide away from faithfulness to the Word of the Lord, so the minor judges show the same thing. I want to be clear that each judge was him or herself a gift from God, raised up to do good for the nation, but you can't help but see that as time goes on, the quality of those judges deteriorates. Sinfulness and selfishness come out more and more in those judges. Take, for example, Othniel, the very first judge, one of the major ones. We looked at him a few weeks ago. In terms of a character, he's one of the most admirable of the judges. He's a man of faith, a man of integrity. He's a man of courage. He's not afraid to ask or he's not afraid to risk his life and go to battle against the feared armies of Cush, the sons of Cush, the offspring of Nimrod. Compare Othniel to the last judge, Samson. By contrast, Samson is one of the most disturbing of the judges. Although he too is filled with the Holy Spirit, he has little respect for God's law. He disobeys both his parents and the Lord by insisting on taking a wife from the heathen Philistines. Later, he takes up with a prostitute from those same Philistines. Samson is a Nazarite which means he's forbidden from doing a number of things, including touching the dead, but he, he thinks nothing of going to a dead carcass of a, uh, of a dead lion and scooping out honey. Samson is obsessed with self-satisfaction, with giving in to his lust, and thinks nothing of lies and deception to entertain himself. Think of what he did to Delilah. From Othniel, in the beginning, the, the selfless, righteous judge we come at the end, we descend to Samson, the selfish and frequently unrighteous judge. So that's the pattern of the, the main judges, the, the, the major ones. That pattern is reflected in the six minor judges as well. Shamgar, the first, he has the most to commend him. The last, Abdon, has the most to criticize. It's more subtle in the six minor judges, but it's still there. Shamgar, we read in chapter 3, he saved Israel. The same is said of Othniel and Ehud and Gideon, but no major judge after Gideon is ever said to save Israel. Not even Samson with all of his various battles. And this is mirrored in the minor judges. The first two, Shamgar and Jair, they are said to save Israel. 
But the last four are silent about any saving work. In fact, for the last four, there is no enemy mentioned at all. So it seems that all these four do is the judicial work of, of judging the tribes, just like Deborah was doing sitting under the tree. All the major judges, when you look at what they do, they have to contend with a, a physical enemy from outside of Israel. But the six minor judges, they have to contend with strife from within Israel. They have to decide disputes among the people of God, and they have to do that according to the law of the Lord. Remember, that's what a, a judge would do. People would come to them with disputes, and they would open up the scroll of the law, and they would decide right from wrong according to, to God's law. Only these judges, as they go along, they have forgotten the law of the Lord, or at least they don't apply it to themselves. And if we just pause over that for a moment, that seems very, very similar to what's going on in our country, doesn't it? And in the U.S. as well. We've got rulers and governing officials making all kinds of laws these last months, which they insist the people follow, but they themselves very often don't follow. We just had a cabinet member resign in Ontario because he wasn't following the protocols set out by his own government. We see that. We see the unfairness in that. We see the hypocrisy in that. Well, how much worse than when it happens among God's people in the church? In the church, that's the very place you expect to find fairness and justice, but you can't get it. From the very men you expect to see as examples of humility, love, and godliness, you, you instead encounter pride and lack of care and a, a worldly attitude. That's what's happening among the minor judges in Israel. It starts in chapter 10 in that second grouping of judges. The inspired author of Judges has arranged these uh, minor judges in three groupings as we read them. You get Shamgar, so he's a group of one. Then in chapter 10, you get a grouping of two judges. And in chapter 12, a grouping of three judges. So it's a one, two, three. Shamgar, he comes on the heels of the two good judges at the very beginning, Othniel and Ehud. While Tola and Jair, they come on the heels of a questionable judge, Gideon at best, and his evil son Abimelech. And when you look at the whole book of Judges, you find out that Gideon and his judgeship is the turning point in the book. Gideon's judgeship starts off weakly. You remember, he didn't even want to be a judge. He kept questioning whether he should be the one to save Israel. He's got a lot of trepidation, but the Lord stays with him, and the Lord encourages him, and the Lord brings a massive victory over the Midianites through Gideon's efforts. So there, there's a real crescendo. There's a real highlight in Gideon's saving work, but almost no, as soon as it's over, there's a, a, a cresting and there's a turning of the tide, and Gideon embraces idolatry. That's the part we read from chapter 8. He says, throw your earrings to me. Give me your gold earrings. Put them here in this blanket. And then he makes an ephod, and the people bowed down to this ephod. It was a, a new idol for Israel. So Gideon, who started his career denouncing Baal worship, finishes it by endorsing and encouraging idol worship. 
And in the middle of that Gideon story, you might want to just turn back there a moment to chapter 8, if you've got your Bibles handy. Chapter 8, verse 22. Right in the middle, there is one uh, event that we might easily overlook, but which shines a light on what was going on in the hearts of the people. Verse 22. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Rule over us. That's, that's a lot more than asking Gideon to be judge. A judge was just somebody who resolved disputes. But a ruler, that's like a king. And they stress it. You have saved us from our enemies. We want you to be a king. Set up a dynasty. No judge was ever to have a dynasty. This was a, a, something kings did. Set up a dynasty so that your sons and your grandsons will rule us after you. The spirit of the people is in, is in a, a rebellion against God. They hadn't asked God for the king. God hadn't granted them a king. They were looking to Gideon as the man who had saved them. You saved us, Gideon. They wanted a king like all the other nations. Just like the idol worship all through this time period showed that the Israelites were constantly rejecting the Lord, so this desire for a human king in the same fashion as the nations round about them, it showed that the hearts of the people were rejecting the Lord. This is the church rejecting the Lord. And isn't that what we're seeing, beloved? more and more throughout Canada, the United States, and the Western world. The Western world used to believe in the supremacy of God. That used to be a given. But now, God isn't even allowed a say in the rule of the nation. Our national anthem says, Ruler supreme, who hearest humble prayer, hold thy dominion in thy loving care. Have you ever heard our prime minister sing that? This is our national anthem. It never gets sung in parliament. Our prime minister, our cabinet, and for that matter, any of the political parties, they're embarrassed by these words. They wish they could excise them. They're offended by these words. They don't believe them for a moment. God's law, God's rule used to be recognized in this land, used to be recognized in courtrooms and in policymaking. But now it's a chargeable offense if somebody dares to hang a copy of the Ten Commandments in a courtroom. That doesn't belong there, they say. Churches used to be regarded as desirable in the communities for the good they would bring to a village or a town or a city. But now churches are regarded with suspicion. Churches are regarded as lost tax revenue or they're simply ignored as irrelevant. The churches are easily lumped in with sports, movies, movie industry, bowling, restaurant industries, as just another form of entertainment that can be shut down if there's a need to contain a virus. Just think of what's being shut down in this lockdown. And think of what's not being shut down. Liquor stores, Walmart across the street, airplanes. You realize that airplanes are flying every hour and people are sitting shoulder to shoulder 
masks on, but they're sitting shoulder to shoulder, and we can only have 10 in the building. Our nation has rejected God as king. But, and here's the point of the text, this should not surprise us or shock us. This is the tendency of mankind in general, and it's no different among God's own people. Gideon, for his part, in response to the Israelite request, he said the right thing, I will not rule over you, my son will not rule over you, the Lord will rule over you. Gideon understood what was going on there with that request. The Lord will rule over you. He's your king. They, he understood that they were after a, a human king like the heathen nations, and he resisted it, and yet Gideon was very weak. He didn't want to be Israel's king, but it seems like he started acting like a king nevertheless. For we read in verse 30, Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. I want you to keep your eye on that number 70. It's going to come back. Gideon had many wives. That's what heathen kings would do. They would multiply wives. They would have large harems, and they would have lots of children. If you go back to the earlier judges, the faithful judges, the first model judge, Othniel, it specifically says he had one wife, a fine lady, Aksa, who was really a faithful helper suitable for him. It says in chapter 1 of, Joshua, of, jo of Judges, and it's repeated actually earlier in the book of Joshua, that she went to her father Caleb and asked her father for a set of springs so that they could properly use the land that they had inherited. She was a real help. She was a beauty. Axa. Gideon's got a harem full. Joshua, one wife. Moses, one wife. God had given marriage as a gift between one man and one woman. That's from the beginning. And God had specifically said in Deuteronomy 17, which we read, that a king shall not acquire many wives, lest his heart be turned away. But Gideon the judge, Gideon who was supposed to uphold the law of the Lord, he acts contrary to the law. Gideon starts what becomes a downward slide of setting oneself up as the, the de facto ruler, the pretend king in the place of God. That trend really comes to light in the last three of the last four minor judges. Jair, in chapter 10, verse 3, Jair the Gileadite, he had 30 sons. Well, brothers and sisters, you can only have 30 sons if you have multiple wives. So Jair has also got himself a harem like Gideon, only he goes further. These 30 sons, they ride, he makes them ride on 30 donkeys, and they possess 30 cities. And the whole group of those 30 cities, they're given a name. They're named after the patriarch Jair, Jair himself. They're called Havoth Jair. That simply means the villages of Jair. He's making a name for himself, Jair is. And what is it with these donkeys? Well, donkeys, we know, were used in a number of different contexts. They could be used as beasts of burden, carrying cargo, but they were also used as special animals to, on which kings would ride and 
princes in times of peace. Later in the books of Samuel and, and Kings, we can read of David's sons riding on mules, and mules is, is an offspring of a donkey. Absalom rides on a mule, and we know of King Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. So these details in chapter 10, verse 3 and following, these details tell us that Jair has royal aspirations and he wants his sons to rule after him. He's setting up a royal family tree. Even though the Lord had not appointed him to be king. And this desire only grows among the next judges. Chapter 12. Elon, the middle one there, is the lone exception in this third grouping. But Ibzan and Abdon both are into harems. They're into concubines, sons, and donkeys as well. Ibzan, we are told, has 60 children, 30 sons and 30 daughters. And he specifically marries his 30 daughters off to men outside of the clan, and he brings in 30 women from outside the clan to marry his sons. What does that tell you? It tells us that Ibzan was a smooth political operator. He was extending his personal influence and power by means of all these marriages, because if you've got a, a son or a daughter in families spread far and wide, that means you've got friends in those far-flung places, and you've got influence there, and you've got allies there. That's the same way that heathen kings would do it. In fact, it's the same thing Solomon did in his foolishness later on in his, his kingship. He married a whole bunch of women, foreign women, and he made alliances with those heathen kingdoms. And then there's Abdon, the last of the minor judges, he does one better than Ibzan. He and his many wives, they have 40 sons, we are told, and 30 grandsons now. Now we're into the next generation, all of whom ride on a total of 70 donkeys. There's that 70 coming back. The Israelites had asked Gideon to become their ruler, to become their king, they wanted him to establish a dynasty for he and his 70 sons. But that all didn't happen. But a few generations, here we have Father Abdon setting up a little kingdom of his own across three generations in a clear imitation of the great Gideon. And he shows the hunger for man to be his own king, his own boss. Well, isn't that brothers and sisters, an accurate commentary and perspective on the year 2020, a year where mankind exerted itself like none other in recent memory to show itself to be its own king. A virus was sprung on the world early in 2020, thought to be wildly contagious and highly lethal. What was the world's response when that became known? Did they pause? Did the world pause at any time to pray to the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, for help? Did the world repent of its rebellion of its unbelief 
Did the world ever seek first the kingdom of God and trust God to bring it out of this crisis? Well, you and I know those thoughts never crossed the world's mind. Fallen people, rebellious fallen people, they, they naturally put their trust in themselves or in other people looking for salvation from humans. The church of the Old Testament itself shows this time and again, a drift away from God into man-centered salvation. We'll save ourselves. We'll do it. And if that happens in the church, like it's happening in the church in the days of the judges, if it happens among God's people, how much more in the world? Our society is banking on, God, on, on governments to come to the rescue. And governments are banking on the scientists to come to the rescue with a vaccine. But nobody is banking on the Creator. Nobody is banking on the King of the universe to do anything about it. And yet, brothers and sisters, despite all of that rebellion, the good news is this, the news that no human anywhere deserves to get is this, the Creator and the King of the universe is doing something about this virus. He follows through this God of ours on His invincible pledge to save His people from sin. For it's clear as the trend is toward self-rule and setting up personal kingdoms of men, equally clear in this book of Judges is the unspoken pattern of God's gracious, undeserved involvement. No matter the level of sin, no matter the height of arrogance and rebellion among His people, and specifically among the rulers that He set up as judges, the Lord doesn't quit the church. The Lord never leaves His own church. Think about that. Think about what God had to put up with. And ask yourself whether you would have had the patience and the grace to put up with it. Virtually every generation after a faithful judge was raised up by the Lord passed away, that generation, the next generation, turned back to idol worship, rejected the Lord. This happened not once, but dozens of times over hundreds of years. How many times can you be rejected and still love those who reject you? And then think that one of the judges that God had raised up, who had earlier condemned the worship of Baal, at the end, sets up an ephod and teaches Israel a new form of idol worship. And when some of the judges the Lord sends during times of, of peace, like these minor judges, they go against the very principles and commands of God's law, and they start marrying lots of women, and they start setting up their own fiefdoms where their personal influence is all they care about. If you were the Lord... For a moment, if you could, put yourself in the Lord's shoes. Seeing what was taking place among your people time and again, you saw this persistent rebellion. How would you feel? What would you do? 
with, with people that keep sinning like this. It's in their DNA. At a certain moment, you'd want to say, that, that's it. It's over. You want nothing to do with me, so I want nothing to do with you. And yet, that is not what our God says. His heart is too compassionate. His love, which is just a love that comes out of His own deep well, is too great. His grace is too wondrous. For although He surely punishes the sin of His people, and He absolutely afflicts His people with a disciplining hand, He does not cast them off. He doesn't disown Israel. Though Israel does not deserve it, the Lord remembers the ancient promise that He had made to Father Abraham. In you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And the Lord wasn't going to let that fall, that promise. In the line of Abraham, out of those 12 tribes of Israel, must come a Savior. God had promised that. A Savior who would be the just judge that nobody in Israel could be. A Savior who would be the true king that no pretender could ever be to establish real justice in the land and bring God's salvation to all the earth. The Lord was going to do that. And that's the quiet drumbeat that beats, that keeps tapping with each of these minor judges appearing on the scene. The gospel is there even in the sending of a judge because that judge is sent to do God's people some good. They, they are raised up to do some people, uh, His people good even though they themselves have corruption. Gideon did good even though he also did some evil. Jephthah did good even though he also did some evil. Same with Samson and same with each of the minor judges. The very fact that generation after generation Time after time, there is a new judge to, to judge Israel and guide Israel in the Lord's way only happens because God is working toward the birth of the Messiah, the better judge. And maybe you noticed another trend, that the more corrupt a judge is, the shorter his term as judge. Tola and Jair in that middle group, chapter 10, they rule, it says, for 23 years and 22 years apiece, a total of 45 years. When you get to the last three judges, and of course more corruption, the one fellow with no mention of any sons or daughters, he actually reigns the longest. That's Elon, the Zebulonite. He judges for 10 years. But the other two, the two judges with the most children, the two judges who, who are most acting like kings, who make the biggest power plays toward their own dynasties, Ibzan and Abdon, they judge Israel for only seven years and eight years respectively. So the last three judges have 25 years between the three of them. A mercifully short time. Why? So that their sin would not take root. And when you start adding up the numbers, the years of the minor judges, you get this 25 plus the earlier 45 from chapter 10, you end up with a total of 70. There's that number again. 
Othniel, by contrast, the faithful first judge who saved Israel, he gave the land of Israel rest for 80 years. But the minor judges who kept coming and going rapidly and increasingly rapid as time goes on, altogether they gave 70 years of service. 70 years to match the 70 sons and grandsons and the 70 donkeys, 70 years of failing to live up to the faithfulness that the Lord required of them. 70, that's the number 7, which you know is the number of fullness and perfection, multiplied by 10, which is the Holy Spirit's way of saying, uh, characterizing this whole time period as a time period of, of man-centeredness, where, as it says later in the book of Judges, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The time of the Judges was 70 years, symbolically then, of faithlessness. That characterizes most of the minor judges. But maybe you notice there's one exception in the lot. There's one judge who stands out from the six. There's one judge who has no tribal affiliation and who has no death notice Shamgar. No wife is mentioned. He's just there. He, he's suddenly on the pages of Scripture. He's, he's a lone figure on the scene. The text is silent about any sons or grandsons or donkeys. In fact, one wouldn't have thought much of this Shamgar, for he was just a simple farmer working in the fields. We know that he was a farmer because when he was attacked by the Philistines, he used an ox goad in his defense. An ox goad is simply a long stick, about eight feet long, two inches in diameter, usually made of hardwood. And on one end was a very sharp point. That's where the farmer would, would literally poke or goad the ox so that he could, the ox would carry on with the, pulling the plow. And on the other end, there would be a flat iron piece that would be used sometimes to scrape off the mud that was gathering on the blade of the plow. That's Shamgar. Just a simple farmer guy. No pretensions. Not interested in setting up his own kingdom. A humble man whom the Lord called to do a mighty work with a surprising and unlikely weapon and through him defeated a very powerful enemy, the Philistines. I mean, later, Samson has his hands full with the Philistines, doesn't he? And he doesn't even defeat them. Well, who does that sound like when you hear a description of Shamgar like that? Doesn't that sound a, a lot like the great Savior farmer, Jesus Christ? No, Jesus certainly didn't till the earth with a plow, not that we know of. But he certainly sowed seed, didn't he? Even as we speak, he is growing a crop among us, a spiritual crop. Just like Jesus is a fisher of men, so he is a farmer of men. He's the sower who sows the seed. Jesus didn't set himself up as king, just like Shamgar, but he was appointed to the task by God the Father. He was 
appointed to rule the kingdom until all of his enemies are under his feet and then hand the kingdom back to his father. Jesus is about bringing glory to his father. And if the ox goad surprised the Philistines as an, as an invincible weapon in Shamgar's hands, where 600 Philistine soldiers could not defeat God's one chosen servant, just imagine those Philistines must have been flabbergasted. Didn't the shedding of the very blood of Jesus surprise the devil as an even more invincible weapon where the devil's army and all of his hosts couldn't defeat God's chosen servant even though they had him on a cross? Satan was sure he was winning over Jesus, but Jesus made it plain that the devil was losing and he can never win. Jesus died and came back to life. The devil can never win. That is the hope for the new year of our Lord 2021, beloved. Jesus, the better Shamgar, has come. And he has done all that has needed doing to defeat Satan and the power of sin. And what is it that lies behind this coronavirus? If it isn't sin if it isn't the corruption that sin brings into God's creation? Isn't that what causes all the viruses and all the sicknesses and all the illnesses? So if the Lord Jesus, who rules on high from heaven's throne, if He has broken the back of Satan's kingdom, if He has shattered the crippling power of sin in this world, and if he has removed the sting out of death, well, he's more than able, isn't he, to do something about this virus, even a mutating virus. Jesus is our comfort in all of this. As much as we, we receive Christ's gifts among men, even the gift like a, like a vaccine, we don't put our trust in those gifts, and we don't derive our consolation from those gifts. Governments, doctors, scientists, vaccines, they're not saviors. Christ is. So let's look to Him confidently and trust Him for help every day of this new year. And, and let your neighbors know. You don't have to give a big sermon to your neighbors. Just have a little conversation. Sprinkle a seed. Shine the light. Tell, just tell them what you know about this Savior Jesus who's on the throne. He's the only hope for this world. He's the only one who has gotten to the root of all that's wrong in this world. And He offers salvation for everybody. Tell them. Amen.